Thank you, Philip. And my welcome to Hobie's. My name is Steve Woodworth, one of the pastors here. And as he's uh, reminded us several times um, when we gathered this morning, uh, we, we're at the very beginning of what we typically call um, Holy Week or the, or the Passion of Christ Week, a number of names. But essentially, the, the lead up to our great celebration of, of Easter um, and what, the way that the, the Gospels describe this journey to us is that there is a turning point in every single one of the Gospels. And in, and in different ways, um, they talk about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. That there's a turn, that there's, there's this outward ministry and he's out among the people and in the villages and the towns. And then at a, at a certain point for each one of them, they recognize that Jesus now is turning towards what he understands to be his ultimate calling and reason for being here on earth to take our place on the cross. And he sets his face towards it. So that is what this week is about. And it begins with this triumphal entry, his entering into. And then we will, of course, gather together for a Good Friday celebration. And then the greatest celebration the world has ever known next week during Easter. Um, but turn with me this morning, and if you will, uh, to John chapter 12. Uh, verses 12 to 19. It's also printed in your bulletin there, and we will read the passage together. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey on it. And donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come to you on this, this day, Lord, with, um, as Hobie even began this time, with a, with a mixture of, of incredible joy, Lord, that we are the sheep of your pasture, Lord, that, that what, what we bear witness to today through your word, Lord, is the, is the great rescue of God, our coming King. And yet we are in that in-between time, Lord, before your, your return again, where we see brokenness and pain and suffering around us and even within us. Well, we come today and, and none of us here need to hear the opinions of a man. We need to hear from you today, Lord. I pray if there's anything false in what I preached this morning, it would simply fall away. And that whatever is true, Lord, that it would, it would move from our heads to our hearts, where it would be planted, Lord, like a seed. And it would bear fruit, Lord. Cause us to be a people that move out of this place into the spheres of influence you have given us, Lord, declaring again and again, Jesus Christ is King. We pray that we would leave today looking more like him than when we first entered. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, most likely uh, in, in various forms because it was said on a number of different occasions. You have heard the quote, which is plastered in a number of places and certainly all over the Internet at different times. Um, first, they came for the socialists. 
and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Familiar with that, probably, at some point in your life have heard that. It's, it's a quote, and again, in, in different forms, different varieties throughout his life, he used this. Um, Martin Niemöller was his name. He was a German uh, who was a pastor. And I guess the way that we would describe our relationship to him is that it's complicated. There's a reason why perhaps you know the quote better than you know the person who said it. Because he was one of those German pastors who did eventually stand up to the Nazis. He was eventually imprisoned for it. But throughout his entire life, he very much stood in favor of the Nazi regime. And it actually wasn't until they started to impose their will on the church, his little kingdom, that he finally stood up. And even throughout his imprisonment, he volunteered on a number of times. He said, if you let me go, I will fight for the Germans. I will fight in the war. He believed in their expansion. There's just a lot of things about him. But eventually, he came to a place in his life where after enough, enough of history had come to light for him that he recognized all of that, all of that was wrong and fully repented and and came out outspoken. But one of the things that he said near the end of his life is that he said, ask the first man you meet what he means by defending freedom, and he'll tell you privately he means defending the standard of living. Which means simply this, that, that he said, look, give, give me any leader you want uh, as long as they don't mess with my vision of the good life. Give me a tyrant, give me a dictator, give me a liar, as long as they are fighting for what is most important to me. And while we might understand this uh, principle in politics, I'm afraid that for so many of us, the same is equally true. And it's obviously far more dangerous when it comes to our relationship to Christ. Um, Maybe to, to put a finer point on it, Hobie and I oftentimes listen to uh, a pastor online who, who likes to um, frequently make use of this story. You can go on Wikipedia. You can, you can learn it for yourself. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a speech that was given by, and you probably won't forget this now, uh, Judge Noah Sweat, went by the nickname Soggy. It's a speech that he gave on the floor uh, during Prohibition. Right? And so the guys were trying to, to pin him in, uh, in a corner. There was those that were in favor of the sale of alcohol and those that weren't. And so they pinned him and they said, what, what is your view on whiskey? And so he famously, I don't have time to read the whole thing. I'll just give you a, a portion of it. But he says, if, you, if when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty and goes on and on, he says, then certainly I am against it. He says, but if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, then he says, certainly I am for it. And I was thinking about that quote, and again, he, he uses that quite frequently in his, in his sermons. Hobie and I have heard it a number of times, but I was thinking about it this week. When it came time for me to consider which of the catechisms we would use, 
And you can flip back into your bulletin if you need to. But we asked the question this morning, what does it mean for Christ to be king? And I was wondering if perhaps for many of us today, we might say something like, if by king, you mean that Christ defends us and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies, then certainly I am for him. But if by king you mean ruling us and subduing us to himself, then certainly I am against him. I think that's something at the heart of what Niemöller was trying to get across as well, that, that we will take any kind of king as long as he continues to assure us our own personal standard of living. As long as he doesn't ask me to actually follow him. And this is exactly why we return again and again and again every single year to Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, the same exact passages of scripture. We keep coming back to it because our hearts are prone to wander. We need this reminder. We have divided hearts. We have mixed motives regarding our relationship with Christ. And so as we look at this passage today, we'll look through it in in three parts. First, I want to talk about the setting What's happening all around what's going on at this this scene of him coming into Jerusalem. And then we'll talk about the scene itself. And then finally, for us, the sentence. So in the setting, it starts off right at the beginning of this passage, the next day. And this is just good exegesis, right? This is good Bible study method. Whenever a passage says the next day, it's good for us to find out what was happening the day before, right? What's happening the day before? This is in the context of John's passage here, six days Before the great Passover feast, and Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead already. This has happened. The great miracle, sort of the the pinnacle miracle of Jesus' ministry here on earth. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then the next day, after Jesus comes, six days before Passover, he's getting ready to go to the great celebration in Jerusalem. He comes back to this same town where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All sorts of excitement. Remember that guy who was here, who raised Lazarus from the dead? He's coming back. And so this large crowd gathers. And who is this crowd? The crowd that had been with him, in verse 17, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And then verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So this great crowd of people surrounding Jesus, two different kinds of people. The people who were there, who bore witness to the fact. They were there the moment that it happened. They saw Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb. And then other people who had heard about this great mystery, uh, this this great uh, miracle. And so two kinds of folks. And I would say witnesses, I would say curious seekers. And I draw all that out to say that probably in this place today, we've got the same groups of people, Right? we got those of you here that have, in your own life, throughout your lifetime, experienced the grace, the intimacy, the understanding of being redeemed by Christ. You have a firsthand understanding of that. And then there are those of you here who I would also call curious seekers. Folks that have heard about this, that have seen this in the lives of others. Maybe you're here with a friend, a family member who has told you the story of what Christ has done in their life. And that's the crowd of people that are standing with Jesus the day before. And the party was taking place six days before Passover. 
to celebrate Jesus and Lazarus. So just take a little bit of a pause here, just five minutes to explain exactly what Passover is. It's the whole whole purpose behind this, this great celebration, why Jesus is even in Jerusalem in the first place. It's one of the great feasts the Jews would celebrate. They still celebrate it today. It's the high point of Jewish history. It retells the story of God's rescue of his people. So if you're not familiar at all with the Old Testament, I mean, this is the story of thousands of years ago when the Jews were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves. And God comes and visits curses again and again on Pharaoh to let the people go, calls this man Moses to lead the people out. And one of the final things that happened is God says, I'm going to send this great plague now, and it's going to kill the firstborn. The children, the livestock, and, the, and he goes to his own people, the Jews, and he says, the only way that you, you get out of this is if you take this lamb, take it into your home, kill it, and take the blood and paint it over your doorposts. And if you do that, when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house and you won't feel the weight of that curse. Of course, after this happens, then Pharaoh finally remits and lets God's people go. That is the great feast. That's the great celebration. Every single year then, they make these pilgrimages to come from all over the place. The whole diaspora at this time, right? Rome has taken over and the Jews are scattered. And they all come back together again for this great celebration. It is the reminder of God's divine rescue. And that's the context, Passover. But the reason for that party in particular, the reason why the people are gathered there in that town of Bethany is because Jesus raised the dead. That's why they're there. He raised the dead. He gave this ultimate sign to signify his providence, his power, his authority. All of the obscurity, all of the questions about Jesus that had been circling all around that area had finally become clear. He had hinted at it multiple times. He spoke in parables. He used illustrations. And he showed us through signs and wonders and healings. But but raising Lazarus was the pinnacle at this point. It was the moment that had brought him fame and renown, and it was like at a fever pitch at this point. This is the guy. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one that, that, that for thousands and thousands of years we had been promised that God was going to come and bring us a king who would sit on David's throne for all eternity, overthrow all of our enemies. It's finally going to happen. And so much so that the religious leaders are looking on to this crowd that is gathered And they even say, look, the world has gone after him. It's over. We've lost the game here. We've been fighting against this guy for all of these years. And look, like we've lost it at this point. Everybody is here cheering him on. So what scene unfolds in our second point? So these people that are gathered here, they take these branches. They follow Jesus from Bethany all the way up to the Mount of Olives. And they take branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then Jesus found a donkey and sat on it just as it was written. And Zechariah, we read this passage earlier, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is announcing his kingship. No more games, no more parables, no more mystery, no uncertain terms. I am the king you've been waiting for. Jesus could have walked into town absolutely unnoticed. 
At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already made three different, traveling, uh, three different trips to Jerusalem. And perhaps even more importantly, there was a bunch of different ways that he could have got to Jerusalem from Bethany. If you look on a map, don't do it now, but later on if you're interested in that, you could see there's a whole bunch of different ways he could have come into town. And what he does instead is he says, the way that I'm going is up over the Mount of Olives. And the way that I'm going to go down into it is sitting on a colt, just like the prophecy had said. The exact mountain prophesied in Zechariah regarding the, the Messiah. Jesus is declaring his kingship. And the people know it. They recognize it. These would have been good Jews. They're making the pilgrimage. They're celebrating Passover. They knew the promises of the Old Testament. And so what they do is they bring out the palm branches. They bring out the pen. Here's an interesting thing about that. Palm branches are not indicated anywhere in the scriptures to be part of the Passover feast. Right? They're, they're, they're not a general part of this celebration. You wouldn't have normally seen palm branches waving as people walked into Jerusalem. But these people bring it out because... It is the national symbol for the Jewish nation. This is their vision, uh, version of the flag or the bald eagle, right? They would stamp palm branches onto their coins. This was their national symbol. They are saying our king, finally, not Rome, not any of our oppressors throughout history. It is our king, Israel's king. He's finally come. And then they begin to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means literally, save us. Comes from Psalm 118, save us we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of the people standing on the side of that hill that day are saying their long-awaited Messiah was finally coming to crush their enemies. He was going to overthrow their oppressors. He was going to usher back in this, this gilded age of the kingdom of Israel. And here's the truly fascinating thing that isn't said specifically in this passage, right? But it is one of those strong arguments from silence. Jesus is not correcting them. He's not silencing them. He's not stopping their slogans. He's not stopping them from flying those symbols. He's explicitly fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah. And this is striking so much so that in Luke's account of this, he even writes about it. He says, when the Pharisees in the crowd heard the people's worship directed at Jesus, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Right? They're calling you the king. They're saying you're the Messiah. Tell them to stop. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, these stones are going to cry out. So the people are saying, this is it. You are the king. You are the long-awaited Messiah. Right? I mean, I mean if, if, if Hope or I walked up here to the pulpit today and you all began waving symbols and screaming to us, save us, and said, you are the long-awaited Messiah, we would definitely tell our disciples to be quiet. Right? Not true. And Jesus says, I can't stop it. And furthermore, even if I tried to, the rocks themselves would begin to cry out because it is true. The king is here. The Messiah has come. But he's also telling the world exactly what kind of king he intends to be. If you have ears to hear it. The crowds, the disciples, even us today, often don't want to understand this fact. 
In John's gospel, he's giving us this clear timeline of the events surrounding this crucifixion. It's coming to Jesus. It's all unfolding during this, this great celebration of the Passover feast. And in this passage, we learn that the very day, because John gives us this great timeline, the very day that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey was the day that Jewish people called Lamb Selection Day. When the lambs that were going to be sacrificed in the temple for Passover were brought into the city. And this comes all the way back from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament story, the original uh, Passover. It tells us that the first Passover in Egypt, God had commanded the Jewish people to take a lamb into each home and scrutinize each lamb to ensure that it was without blemish. And then the lamb was inspected for four whole days. And if it met the criteria with no blemishes, it was killed on the first day of Passover. And so according to John's timeline, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He rode into His family, so to speak, right? To be scrutinized for four days. And they found Him to be blameless. When we read the rest of the story, we read it this week, leading all the way up to the crucifixion. He goes to Herod. He goes to Pilate. He goes to the Sanhedrin. Even the thief on the cross. All as the literal lambs were being ushered into the temple for sacrifice, Jesus was left dying on a cross outside the city gates. That's the timeline. That's the kind of kingdom and the kind of king Jesus is announcing himself to be. And Jesus was saying, in no uncertain terms, my kingdom is not of this world. And just like the original Passover, salvation will only come by way of sacrifice. After all of the palm branches and cheers for Jesus, he was murdered. Not for being a liar. Not for being a false king, a false prophet. But because in his kingship he called for everyone else to bend a knee. That was the charge. The coming of his kingdom meant the utter defeat. The complete destruction of every other kingdom. And that means for you and for I, it means the destruction of our little kingdoms as well. It's the final point this morning. The sentence, we'll spend the majority of our time talking about this. What are the implications of all of this? I want to focus on a passage that comes before this. The previous chapter in verse 45 We're told many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did in the raising of Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And this is the big point here. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what they were afraid of. Not whether it was true or not. Not whether or not the the Messiah was who he said he was. Or the king had finally come. None of those things. It was that if this is true, and Jesus is the one that God has sent, everyone's going to go after him. And what's going to happen to us? We are going to lose our place and we are going to lose our nation. And they began to make the plot to kill him for it. Our place, they said. And what does that mean exactly? 
It cannot possibly mean that they were very concerned about losing the actual city of Jerusalem because they'd already lost it at that point. They'd already lost Jerusalem as a physical city. Rome conquered it. The Jews were tolerated at that time. They didn't own the town anymore. Their big, beautiful temples were surrounded by hundreds of other temples to a thousand other gods that were being worshipped on a daily basis in that town. But even within that conquered city, these Pharisees still had their small measure of power. They had their status among their own people. They had their reputation, and no matter how small it was, they still had some influence left in that town. And that is what the word translated place here means. Their place in society, their position, their status. Jesus threatened their position, and it says he threatened their nation, their identity. And they were willing to defend those things at all costs. So much so they're willing to kill to hold on to it. And it wasn't just Jesus who threatened them. It was Lazarus as well. We read this in the next passage. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The question for every single one of us today, can that be said of us as well? That because we have so identified with Jesus Christ that we ourselves and our lives that we live before the watching world is threatening to the status quo. It causes people to have a conflict of faith, like a crisis moment where they are forced to choose life or death. Jesus or any other God, right? That by our very presence in their life, they are forced to ask that question. That you're so identified with Jesus that your own life is a threat to the status quo. You know, over the course of the last two years, Christians in China are now forced to register their presence at worship on Sunday through a government-owned and controlled app every single week when they gather Christian schools have been closed. Homeschooling your child now is punishable by imprisonment in China. And do you think that Christians there are being persecuted simply because they believe that a Jewish carpenter who lived over 2,000 years ago died on a cross to cleanse them from their personal sins? You really think that's what the Communist Party is so concerned about? Is some, some religious belief that they think is a myth? You think Christians are being kidnapped and tortured and killed every single day in places like North Korea or Iran or Myanmar, North Africa, Colombia, because they believe in justification by faith alone? You think that's the issue? You think that's the threat to those governments? No, it's because their allegiance to Jesus the King means that all other loyalties are filtered through the lens of his kingdom now. They don't have those people anymore. They worship a different king. They're citizens of a different land. And they follow different rules, different morality, different ethics. They see people with the Imago Dei now. They they see the inherent worth of people. They believe in the freedom of religion and the ability to pursue Christ unhindered. And they threaten the place and they threaten the nation that they live in, because their identity and their position are no longer the center of their loyalties. 
They follow a new king and they're citizens of a new kingdom. And it makes the leaders of those countries very, very nervous. Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they are willing to kill in order to hold on to their standard of living. And the followers of Christ follow him anyway. Why? Because the position and the identity that we have with Christ, for those that are with him, far outweighs in glory and value whatever it is that the world has to offer you. The opening chapter of Ephesians is simply a running list of what Christ offers to those who allow themselves, to use that language of the catechisms, to be subdued by him. And we're given every spiritual blessing, including being chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. That we are given an inheritance, a hope, a salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But again and again and again throughout that passage and throughout all of the scriptures we are told, it's dependent on one key requirement. You have to be with Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians We are blessed in Christ, that we are chosen in him, adopted to himself, that he blessed us in the beloved, and that in him we have redemption. As one commentator was explaining it this week, what does it mean for us to be in Christ? He says, as we are in Christ, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace, his resources become our experiences and possessions And that means that when Christ rides into Jerusalem to declare his kingship, he's not suggesting that you just adopt a new idea. He's not giving you just another metaphor for thinking through his reign and his rule. He is the king and you are the servant. To enter his kingdom, the prerequisite is that your old self is left at the door. Use this biblical language. We've already used it today. To die. For the old person, their place, their identity, to be gone. To be born again. All of your old striving to build your old kingdom. All of it. It marches behind Christ. That's the picture that we have of Palm Sunday. This is people who are waving these branches, getting in line, heading down the mountain. And each one of us today making a choice. Will we follow the king all the way? Because here's the reality, friends, and why so many of those people eventually turn back is because we're following a king who's going to go all the way down that hillside into Jerusalem, but he's going to keep going, isn't he? And he's going to walk back up the other side, out of town, up to a hill called Golgotha, where he's going to be murdered. And it's almost as if the gospel writers are are, are painting this picture for us where Jesus is walking down the mountain and these people are screaming and they're waving their banners and they're saying, the king has come, the king has come. And then he heads through town and they say, where are you going? Wait a minute, what is happening? And then he starts up that other side and he gets off the donkey and instead he puts on a crown of thorns and he picks up a cross. And he starts hiking up the mountain and he turns over his shoulder and he said, are you still coming with me? Where are you? Are you still coming with me? And he says, if any of you are going to be my disciples, you have to take up your own cross and come follow me as well. All the way. This is what the kingdom looks like. They were dreaming all the way that Christ was bringing them their best life now. 
had these visions of the fact that Christ might be finally giving them their perfect families, maybe their promotions in the company, their glorious years of retirement, their fulfilling marriages, their conflict-free relationships, their popularity, their success, their always winning, never failing lives were about to come true. And then we watch him get off his donkey. And he says, come follow me. And of this, Bonhoeffer says, we hear the words of one who is on his way to the cross, whose whole life is summed up in the Apostles' Creed by the word, suffered. And we say, wait, wait, what about the promises? What about the blessings? What about the hope? And Jesus says, they are all yours. They are all yours in me. These promises are not yours apart from me. Adopted, forgiven, redeemed, saved, all yours. Pick up your cross and come follow me. And the reason we do it is because the king does not ask for your faithfulness before he has showed faithfulness to you. That's why we follow this king in particular. Standing on the hillside in Jerusalem, one of the religious cedars, do you not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He didn't even know how much truth he was speaking that day. Because someone did. And we call him the king. If Christ doesn't take that hill and that cross for you, you are left for dead. I am left for dead. You never could do enough good works, Christ says, to enter this kingdom. All that was left for you and I was to die the death of a traitor and an enemy of the king. Every single one of us. But this king dies for you takes the penalty of your rebellion and he gives you the kingdom instead. As we approach this Easter week, you you might have still plenty of doubts, plenty of questions, uncertainties about Jesus or about the resurrection or about this God who is a king that makes this kind of claim on your life. We are glad you are here. Keep asking those questions. Every year, right now, it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves again, Have I just stopped in Jerusalem? Have I just stopped? Have I only followed him halfway? If so, friends, if you hear his voice today, the writer of Hebrews would say, do not harden your hearts. If you hear it today, do not harden your hearts. Confess, repent, follow him all the way to the cross. Let him subdue you. Lose your life in order to find it again in Christ. I don't even know uh, who to quote here at the final, the final part, but there was a podcast I was listening to, and you know how sometimes they have these uh, listeners that write in? I don't know their name. I thought this was fantastic. This call to come and die, this call to come and to put your life into the hands of Christ, said if the consequences of this truth is crucifixion, so be it. No better outcome exists And it's proven to be reversible anyway. The king has come. Let him subdue you, surrender your position, sacrifice your identity, enter a kingdom that the world can never take away from you. Bow to the king whose death has brought you life. Let's pray. Father, subdue us. That's the cry of our hearts this morning, Lord God. You are worth it. Lord, whatever it is that we're holding on to, our place, 
our identity, our reputation, our visions and dreams of the good life, Lord, they all pale in comparison to what it means to be in you. That what is true of you can be true of us, Lord God, if we follow you to the cross and lay down our lives fully. Father, we thank you for the grace, the unbelievable grace and mercy of the cross, Lord. We pray, Father, that as we gaze upon you as you really are, Lord God, you become increasingly beautiful to us. And what we desire more than anything else is the only king who can save us, the only king who did, in whose name we pray. Amen.